0: Ephesians chapter 3, we're going to pick it up here this morning in verse 8, and by God's grace, make it down to verse 13. And we're looking at the big idea of the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church. I candidly have been very excited about preaching this sermon. This was one that I uh, just, one of the passages, concepts, ideas. That in my undergrad training, when I took the book of Ephesians as a semester-long course, this was one of the passages that just really gripped me. It just gave me all the more perspective on life, purpose to life, and and I've just been excited to get to this passage in our study of the book of Ephesians, and I'm prayerful that it will make as much of a a help and impact on your life as it has in mine over the years, but. My goal today is to get through verses 8 to 13, looking at the purpose of the church. And not only the purpose of the church, but by implication that our purpose, our function as believers, as a local assembly, congregation. And again, as I said, knowing the purpose that God has for our church, in the church at large, is what informs us as to our place in it. And it'll not only be this, place, this passage, but many other thoughts and key concepts in the book of Ephesians, particularly when we get to chapter 4, that will all the more define our place in the plan of God as we take our place in a local assembly, and we're part of the plan of God that he is uh, unfolding throughout history. But if you recall with us last week, we talked about the, uh, the first seven verses of this chapter, and let me remind you of the, th- the flow of thought. We're still in these first three chapters of the book, the first half of the book of Ephesians, we are, are putting underneath the big idea, the heading of the, the doctrine, really again, the doctrine being the first half of the book of Ephesians, and then the duty of the believer, uh, our, our belief, chapters one through three, our behavior, chapters four through six. Well, in this first half, talking about our, the believer's blessings in Christ, we talked first about our possessions in Christ, that glorious hymn to the triune God. Then we looked at the prayer for enlightenment, which we're just about to, to get to the counterpart to that in chapter 3. But we see this, our possessions in Christ, this hymn of all that God plans from eternity past to eternity future in the plan of redemption is chapter 1. Then Paul pauses to pray that we would understand it, that we would come to enla- uh, have enlightenment, to understand the, our place in the plan of God, etc., He's just saying amen. I'm good with it. I'm just saying. (laughs) But not only are we to understand it, right? And so he prays for us to understand, but then he teaches us so that we would understand. That's chapter two. It's not only our possessions in Christ, but our position in Christ. That's really the heartbeat of the book. We took several weeks uh, to, to unpack Ephesians chapter two, but then we, we're now jumping into chapter 3, and the, the entirety of the chapter is really about this prayer for enablement, that not only we would understand, right, prayer for enlightenment, that was chapter 1, understand the truth that God has in store for us and the truth of who we are, who God is, who Christ is, what the plan of redemption is, etc., but also how we are then to live in light of it. So we need not only enlightenment understanding, but we need enablement to apply God's truth to our life. And so that prayer for enablement is really the point of chapter 3. But if you recall last time we introduced this concept, that though he's going to get to that prayer, he starts, so it seems, in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, for this cause, and then he digresses. And then he gets back to that in verse 14 of the chapter, for this cause I bow my knee, and then he gets to the prayer itself. So though the chapter, the point of the chapter is this prayer for enablement, he's not actually going to start the prayer until verse 14. Verses 1 to 13 is a digression of thought, where Paul is he's taking us down a bit of a rabbit trail in order to help us understand and have context to what he's getting to with the prayer and then, of course, the subsequent you know, latter half of the book and our uh, behavior of the believer, etc. But this digression from verse 1 to verse 13 is all about the purpose of the church. First, the, the, we talked last week about the plan of God, that Paul is part, he's been, remember, he's a steward of the manifold grace of God, of the mysteries of God, that God has given to Paul a place, a commission to teach and preach the gospel, and that big plan of God that Paul has a part in is ultimately to serve God's purpose for the church, God's plan includes and climaxes in some ways, at least in this age, this era of history, it climaxes with the church. And so Paul's elaboration uh, in in you know this digression in verses one to thirteen is really trying to get to what we're looking at here this morning: the purpose of the church in verse eight to verse thirteen. And so again, this uh, this this concept is important for us to realize. And it, it's gonna. we're going to look at verses 8 to 13 and kind of break it down further by looking at these two ideas. The purpose of the church that Paul wants us to grasp in verses 8 to 13, he's going to start by his role in preaching. That's really where we ended last time. Again, for sake of time, we couldn't fit all 13 verses into last week. There was just too much to talk about. But we covered verses 1 to 7. But recall, it ended with Paul talking about his task, his role, his commission to be a preacher or one who proclaims the gospel. So we're going to pick up the thought there. That's where we left off last time. And we'll look at the preaching of Paul as he elaborates about it in verses 8 and 9. But then, of course, the purpose of that is to teach and preach not only the gospel, but also the purpose of the church and our place in that purpose. And so that's in verses 10 to 13. All right, so that's where we're heading. So if you got your Bible, let's read that section. Verse 8 to 13, then we'll come back, start analyzing it piece by piece, all right? He says this, Paul speaking to the Ephesian believers, he says, Unto me, verse 8, who am less than the least of all the saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world has been hid in God, who created all things, By Jesus Christ to the intent, the purpose, right? There's our purpose clause. That's the purpose of the church, right there. To the intent that now, under the principalities and powers in heavenly places, might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God, according to the eternal purpose which He purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. Wherefore, I desire that you faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Pause there. Now, again, as we look at this section, let's look first at verses 8 and 9, the preaching of Paul, and then we'll get to verses 10 to 13, the purpose of the church. As we look at verses 8 and 9, and we look at Paul's elaboration uh, on his own role as a preacher, the preaching of the gospel being his commission that was given to him uh, all the way back in Acts chapter 9, he talks about first in verse 8 the privilege of preaching and then the purpose of his preaching in verse 9. All right, so let's look at these two ideas briefly. The privilege of Paul to preach the gospel and then his purpose in preaching the gospel. Look again at verse eight, where he says, unto me who am less than the least of all the saints is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, again, I know we're picking up uh, kind of midway through the digression. We we're only talk able to talk about verses one to seven last time. But recall, verse 8, he's still in that same vein of thought. He was talking about this commission given to him, the role he has as a preacher, one proclaiming the gospel of Christ. And that's what we talked about last time, that Paul had received a special commission from God to expound God's mysteries concerning the church. And this mystery, and we talked about it last time, but the word mystery means, it refers to a divine secret, if you will, that was unknown in the era of the Old Testament, but is now being revealed by God in the New Testament era. In other words, it's new information. It's the next step in the plane of redemption, the progress of, of redemption that God revealed. And he revealed it step by step, down through the ages, from prophet to prophet, etc. But now God is using Paul. That's what he's saying. God is, is using him, Paul the apostle, as, a, as a, an agent to reveal God's next stage in the process and plan of redemption. Namely, again, we talked about the the identity of Christ, that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. That's a new secret revealed in the New Testament that wasn't known in the Old. The Old Testament developed the concept of Messiah, but it didn't tell us who it was, his name, until we get to the New Testament. But not only was that mystery revealed, but of course the mystery of the Jew and Gentile, the equal, the uh, equality they have in one body in Christ Jesus, that concept that he spent so much of chapter 2 unpacking, he's saying that's a new concept that God is revealing, that it's, a, it's new to this era of history. And so that's what Paul's talking about. That's what he, We just finished talking about last week is his commission, Paul's commission given to him from God to expound the mysteries of God concerning the church. But after he describes that in verses 1 to 7, when we get to our text here in verse 8, Paul sees a profound irony in the fact that he himself, Paul, earlier, Saul, that he has received this privilege because Paul truly sees himself as the least of all the saints. Notice again in verse 8, he says, again, maybe it's helpful for sake of context, I just kind of walked you through it, but look at verse 7 again. He says, "...whereof I was made a minister." Right, whereof, the idea of the mysteries that God is revealing in this age. God has made Paul a minister. That is, he's the one declaring these mysteries. He's, he's teaching and preaching the gospel. He says, whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. That God not only gave to Paul a commission, but he gave him the ability to do it. He gave him the grace, the strength, the know-how to be able to do that which Paul or God commissioned Paul to do. But as he contemplates this role that he has as a minister uh, who has been gifted by God's grace, he says, Wow, God has given this to me, verse 8. And then he describes himself as the least. He says, in fact, he says, I'm less than the least of all the saints. Now, what's fascinating, you may again, you see it a little bit in English. He says, I am less than the least. But if you're studying this in the original Greek, it's interesting. This is one of those places where Paul is once again at his best. He's coining new words. He's stretching the limits of human language. But here is another example where Paul invents a comparative form of a a superlative word. Now, before you get lost and say, what in the world does that mean? All right, do you remember this? Uh, my, My mom and I, when I was a kid, we used to do this all the time, right? I'd say, I love you, mom. Or she'd say, I love you, Jeff. And I'd say, well, I love you more. And she says, I love you most. And then I used to say, I love you, Moster. (laughs) Moster isn't a word, right? It's a comparative form of a superlative word. Most is supposed to be a superlative. But we take it and we make it, uh, you know, with that extra ER at the end, Moster, right? It's an emphatic way of saying that I love you more than the most itself. And that's what Paul is doing. You don't see it. So, I mean, you can see a little bit in the English where we, you see the repetition, the I'm less than the least, right? That's, I mean, but in, it's all, it's one word in Greek, but he, he's taking this uh, superlative word and he's making it a comparative form. The point is he's coining a word. He's, he's making this up. But the point is he's trying to emphasize that he is, he genuinely views himself as less than even the least of the saints, why is this? Well, again, we're, we're reading between the lines a little bit, but most scholars point out that most likely Paul is describing himself in this way because he never forgot his past. That before his conversion to Christ, he was a persecutor of the Christian church. And throughout his life, we see this evidence throughout his writings, but throughout his life, we can trace that, that Paul had a consistent, he always maintained a strong consciousness of his own sin. Many scholars point this out, but if you plot this chronologically through Paul's life, it's it's interesting to watch his self-descriptions. For instance, out of the three books where he, he uses a description like this, the first one, chronologically speaking, that Paul wrote was 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, he calls himself the least of the apostles. You familiar with that? He says, I am the least of the apostles. In other words, there's a very select, special group of people that Jesus himself selected and commissioned that are called the apostles of Jesus Christ. Paul was one of those. He was untimely born, he describes in 1 Corinthians 15, but nonetheless, he describes himself as least of the apostles. Well, then we get to Ephesians. The next of the three books where these descriptions are given is Ephesians. Chronologically speaking, 1 Corinthians would come first, then Ephesians, and Ephesians is written, and Paul describes himself here as less than the least of all the saints. But, some of you who are familiar with this know where it's heading, but in 1 Timothy 1.15, remember how Paul describes himself, in, and this is, the, out of those three books, this would be the last written. 1 Timothy was written late in his life, probably during his uh, his release between his first and second Roman imprisonments, but when Paul writes... In 1 Timothy 1, he describes himself as the chief of sinners. So, do you see the digression? He goes from the least of the apostles to less than the least of all the saints to then the chief of sinners. In other words, Paul has a growing awareness of his own sinfulness. That is a mark of Christian maturity, by the way, to come to a deeper awareness, self awareness of our own sinfulness. It's part of Christian maturity. If you actually go the reverse, where you start thinking of yourself more highly than you ought to think, as Paul puts it elsewhere, <laughs> you know, as the longer you're saved, the, the, the better you think you are. In other words, should we be growing in our Christ likeness and our godliness? Yes. Are we going to be sinless? No. But we should learn to sin less, as they say. Right, we're not going to be sinless, but we should sin less than we used to sin. That's part of growing in grace and growing in Christ-likeness. But nonetheless, we're not going to be perfect. And the older we get, the longer we live, the more we battle our sinful self, then what happens with a Christian who is growing in maturity and self-awareness, they actually have an increased understanding of their own sinfulness. And because you start learning your own heart a little bit better, you start realizing how finite and fickle and fragile our hearts are, as we talked about a little bit in the morning session and during the Sunday school hour in the book of Proverbs. But this idea is we see it in the life of Paul. And so Paul never forgot his past, never forgot where he came from. And so he's marveling at the fact that God has taken him and put him in this position of usefulness to proclaim the gospel. But he goes on. He says at the end of verse 7, or I'm sorry, verse 8, end of verse 8 and end of verse 9, he gives us the purpose of his preaching. Not only is he privileged to preach. I love this. <clears throat> 1 Timothy 1, let me just, I, I got just a minute. I'm gonna, uh, so I'm actually back on the previous thought just a little bit because I wanted to go forward and then I had a thought and I said, well, back up, you know, let's, let's think about this for a second. Um, there's this text, I always, it always is near and dear to my heart where Paul describes his own commission in 1 Timothy chapter one. He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, verse 12, 1 Timothy 1, 12. This is a freebie, it's not in your notes. But he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. He says, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor, injurious, etc. It's later in this passage, verse 15, which is in your notes, where he calls himself, you know, the chief of sinners. But he's remembering where he came from, and it's important for us to to do that. And I, and I love this passage because it talks about not only Paul's, you know, sinfulness and his, and, but he he's he's also underscoring the privilege it is to serve God. Um. <laughs> random story: I was in college, and uh, I think it was my freshman year of college. There was one of those. Uh, it was called extension church ministries where you're on campus doing the school thing all week long but then it was the weekend and so the weekend they encouraged all the students to go out from the campus and to go find a local church to minister in just to go attend that church join that church be faithful to that church help be a blessing to the you know the congregation the pastor whatever so i was part of a, an extension team that that went to the same church for 3 years running and then my 4th year i switched extension churches uh, because, it's a long story, but a buddy of mine and I, we, we took the church together because the church didn't have a pastor and it was dying. And so it was like, hey, you know, we got, we went to help keep the church going and keep it alive. Um, but those first three years, I went to this Extension Church and there was this guy that, you know, you know, you know that guy. <laughs> that every time I went to church, this guy was a know-it-all. And he was so brazen and, and just, you know he was a loudmouth. he was totally unteachable because he thought that he knew you know everything there was to know about God in the Bible and and he just would constantly come and and you know because I was nice enough to listen to him rather than just you know write him off and walk away but that was to my own downfall because he just would come and talk to me every single week he would he would corner me and then he would lecture me as to his greatness you know what I'm saying and, it, and I, you know, I just took it patiently. It was so much, I learned so much about patience with that guy. Um, but one time, and I, could, and I didn't even mean to be I mean, but, like, I had just been working through 1 Timothy 1. And, and I talked about, because he asked me, it was one of the few occasions where he asked me a question and let me speak. But he says, so why are you at Bible college? Why are you going, you know, why do you want to be a pastor? And I said, well, you know, so, and I used the phrase, I said, well, uh, you know, I was such and such an age and I just, and I, and I felt God calling me to the ministry. And I used that phrase. And of course, because he's a know-it-all, he interjected and he says, well, you know, that phrase isn't in the Bible, right? It's such a thing that, you know, being put into the ministry, that's not even a, that's not even a Bible term. We invent that term and, you know, insert it in. And I said, well, First Timothy 1, says that. And he should have seen his face. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he got this long look like, well, maybe I should shut up every once in a while and listen, you know? And it was kind of like, and I didn't rub it in. I was just like, well, okay. But anyways, from there forward, I can't read that verse without thinking of this guy. You know what I'm saying? So it came to my mind, and so I figured I'd share it with you. Aren't you all blessed, right? But yeah, yeah, you're welcome. What can I say? But but 1 Timothy, uh, you Timothy one twelve, I think of that verse because... Paul, it's talking about the privilege of ministry, right? And and again, the word ministry means to serve. It means to be a a, a table uh, waiter. That's what it means. It's actually the word where we get deacon, diakonos. It's just do the menial tasks. That's what it means. And yet Paul says just to do the menial task is a privilege of utmost glory. And he says, man, thank you, God, David puts it this way in the Psalter. In the book of Psalms, he says, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. I love that. I'd rather be a doorkeeper, just a menial task that nobody cares about and everybody overlooks, as long as it's in the house of God. I'm serving God, rather than dwelling in the tents. And it's a picture, particularly in that time and place, of being one of those you know, nomadic sultans. You know, this, this just... Uh, entourage of wealth in a tent and he says i'd rather be that doorkeeper in the house of my god than dwell in the tents of wickedness and you know that's it's so important for us to maintain perspective on that and the privilege it is to know god love god serve god but that's what paul's talking about here in ephesians 3 right we were going to get back to ephesians 3 i promise but here we are we're making a full circle that's what paul's talking about he's saying look at the privilege it is to serve god and he's marveling at it in verse 8 but then he goes on to say that his goal, again, into verse eight, into verse nine, he says, "Unto me, who am the least of the, uh, uh, less than all the least of the saints, is this grace given? That here's the purpose that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world has been hid in God who created all things by Jesus Christ." In other words, he gives us two purposes to his preaching. He has the privilege to preach and serve God, but he says the point of my preaching is twofold. First, verse eight, to offer grace. He's preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ. But then second, he's also preaching to grant purpose, to help all men see what is their purpose. Verse nine. All right, so let's think about this. First, in verse at the end of verse eight, to offer grace. Paul, again, Is glorying in the glorying or he gloried in the immensity of his privilege and responsibility to preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. But again, just like so many passages in the book of Ephesians, Paul is stretching language. It's not enough just to say it. He's gotta say it better, right? With with extra verbiage. So he says that his the goal of his preaching He's, he's privileged to preach, but when he preaches, what is he doing? He says, I'm preaching among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So instead of simply using the common term gospel, like he's, I'm going to go preach the gospel. And that's a wonderful word that Paul will use over and over and over again. But nonetheless, he he here elaborates upon it, and he invents another word in order to try and communicate really the infinity, if you will, the limitless, the immeasurable amount of God's grace in Christ. So he says, I'm preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, this is a fun Greek word study uh, that I'll try and keep brief. But the Greek word that's translated unsearchable that is here in our text appears nowhere else outside of biblical Greek. It is built uh, off the word that actually is translated footprint, the verb form of this word was used typically to refer to hunting, tracking, or searching. But Paul places the alpha negative in front of that. This is the the A that means not, or you know he's negating the idea. He places the alpha negative in front of the adjective in order to create the word unsearchable. Right. So in the verb form, it means to search, to hunt down, to track the footprints and find something. But he says, he uses it, turns it into an adjective, and he puts that you know, alpha negative in front of it. So he says, the grace of God is unsearchable. This word does appear, again, in biblical Greek, including the biblical Greek of the Old Testament, the the Greek translation of the Old Testament, known as the Septuagint, that's the LXX, you remember that? It's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It does appear in Job, chapter five, chapter nine, to describe the inscrutable and unfathomable ways of God. That God is so great and he's so immense, he's infinite, that we will ultimately never be able to find him out. We are finite, we are limited, we have limitations. God does not. So that's what this word means. Paul's point then, in using this word, he's saying that Paul's preaching, in his preaching, it's really twofold. He wants first to explore and expound on the riches of Christ right, which ultimately he's saying are beyond all human calculations or imaginations. He says, in other words, I could spend a lifetime. I remember asking my dad this when I was like 12 years old, you know, because dad would get up every week and he'd preach, you know, get in the pulpit and he'd preach and he'd preach three, four times a week. And I just asked him one time, I said, dad, you know, I mean, I looked at the Bible and I was like, are you ever going to run out of stuff to say? You know what I'm saying? (laughs) I said, I mean, it's just one book, right? And I mean, you're going to devote your entire life to talking about that book? I said, are you ever going to write? And my dad, of course, you know, pats me on the head, my little naive self, and he says, oh, this is it. the Bible. You never run out of things to say about the Bible. You know, and of course, as I grow in my own, you know, age and maturity and study, and I'm like, man, he was right. There, It's just, it's endless. That it, you, you never run out of things to say. That's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, I have the privilege of preaching Christ and the grace of God in Christ. He says, but that grace is unsearchable. We will never find the end to this grace. And that, I don't know about you, but that when I first understood that and I grasped that, it, it, it made me excited because I said, you know what, you're right. The Bible, we will we'll never run out of things to say when we talk about God in the Bible. If God is truly infinite, we never run out of things to say. What a fun way to devote your life. I, and and that's, it. was one of the things that helped push me into a desire of, of preaching. But that's Paul's point. He says his, his first goal is to simply explore and expound and hold up in front of people's eyes the glory of Christ, the grace of God that is unsearchable. But he also, through doing that, it also grants purpose. That's verse 9. Notice again, he says, I'm preaching among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. He says, and, verse uh, 9, to make all men see. In other words, he has a second purpose to his preaching, which is insightful. In other words, once people were saved by the preaching of grace, the unsearchable riches of Christ, Paul had the additional responsibility of imparting insight into the nature of God's plan as it is now being revealed. He says, "I want you first to understand the unsearchable riches of Christ, the glory of God, the grace of God all on display in Christ, the glorious inheritance that is waiting for us." I mean we could do a whole sermon and a sermon there just unpacking the unsearchable riches of Christ what does that refer to obviously God's grace, God's plan, God's the inheritance awaiting the saints, all of the above. but he says, when I do that when I talk about God's you know, grace and the unsearchable riches of Christ. He says, I'm doing it, verse 9, to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world has been hid in God who created all things by uh, Christ Jesus. In other words, this is an an interesting insight. uh, Clinton Arnold points this out, commentator through the book of Ephesians. He says this, in his earlier prayer for his readers, back in chapter 1, remember this? The prayer for enlightenment. In his earlier prayer for the readers, Paul asked God for his spirit to illuminate their minds. That was back in chapter 1, verse 14, or 18, rather. And that's the word photidzo. I, I shared you uh, the Greek word. Photidzo, that same word appears here in chapter 3 and verse 9. He now uses the same word to describe his own role of illuminating God's plan to his converts. In other words, he's praying for God to do the work of shining on the light and helping us understand, but he's also saying that he's cooperating in the task. So put those two passages together, chapter one, verse 18, chapter three, verse nine, what we discover is that God illumines his people to his truth through the spirit of God when we pray, back in chapter one, but also through the, the, the faithful reading, teaching, preaching Of the scripture. Paul is saying that I had I prayed for God to open their eyes, but then I preached. And God used that as well. You again, I I draw attention to it every once in a while, but oftentimes when people get up, today it was Peter gets up and prays, asks God's blessing upon the service. We're trying to follow that format. We're saying, okay, first we pray, we go to God. That's Ephesians 1. God help us understand. Then what happens? I get up and I preach. Paul did the same thing. He says, God helped them understand. Then he gets up and he says, all right, this is what the Bible says. And between God's, you know, praying to God for his grace and then being faithful about the task of teaching and preaching and our human efforts, God uses both of those things to bring the light to our hearts and our minds, to help us understand the scripture. So that's what he's talking about. But he goes on to say in verse nine that when people are illumined, when the light bulb goes on and they understand, as he says here, the fellowship of the mystery of the saints, when they're illumined as the purpose of the church, then they see their place in it all, which is what helps them see how they fit into the world and the plan of God. Because remember, this is, and again, we're, we're, leaning upon some of the stuff we talked about last week, what he mentioned in the first seven verses. But the idea is the, the fellowship of the mystery, he says in verse nine, he's referring back to that idea in verse six, that the Gentiles, the mystery that he's unveiling is this fellowship that Jew and Gentiles have fellowship of this in the same body, partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. In other words, his, his goal is to help the Gentiles in particular, because Paul was the apostle to the Gentile, His his primary preaching ministry was to Gentiles. And his goal was to help Gentiles see that they have a place in the purpose and plan of God. And he wants them to come to an awareness of it, to say, oh, God cares about me. God saved me. I have a purpose and a point in God's plan. And once they understand that, now they're drawn to it. They have a sense of purpose. Does that make sense? He's trying to help you see that you have a place to belong. And that's what we discussed at the end of chapter two, right? Because that's the heartbeat uh, of the book of Ephesians, the heart of the book, chapter two, where he unpacks that concept. But notice how this idea of his preaching is is for the purpose of trying to help people understand the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world has been hidden God, right? That's the idea of a mystery. It was unknown. Uh, in the Old Testament era, but is now being revealed in the New Testament era. He says, I want you to understand what God is doing in this time, in this place, and how you fit into the plan of God. And then that's, of course, how he, where he then elaborates. Verses 10 to 13, he then gets to this concept, this idea of the purpose of the church. Stick with me. This is really intriguing. He says in verse 10, He says, to the intent. In other words, I want you to see that you have a place in God's plan, the fellowship of the mystery, that you as a Gentile have a place in God's plan. Why? Why is that important for us to understand our place? Verse 10. To the intent that now, under the principalities and powers in heavenly places, might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness, and access with confidence by the faith of Him, wherefore I desire that you faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Paul's point in verses 10 to 13 is that his role in preaching the gospel and spreading the church actually serves a larger purpose in the plan of God. And that larger purpose is God's purpose for the church. In other words, there was an individual purpose Paul had, but that individual purpose served a larger corporate purpose. And that's what he wants to draw their eyes to in verses 10 to 13. So he describes how God has designed the church so that the wisdom of God can be uniquely put on display or laid out in front of the principalities and powers of the universe. This is a shocking statement. The first time I understood what verse 10 is getting at, it was one of those jaw-dropping moments. It was like, wow, it helps me understand so much of the purpose and plan of God and my place in it. What I want to do for the next few moments is is talk you through the concepts that Paul is here elaborating on, verses 10 to 13. And I want to do so by talking you through what I call the grand drama, the grand drama of God's plan, human history. I want to walk you through verse 10 in particular and then how he applies it, you know, verses 11, 12, 13. But I want you to see First of all, in this grand drama of what Paul is saying, the purpose of the church is, first, we we have to ask the question who's involved? Who are the actors in this grand drama? Second, I want you to see who's watching? Who is the audience of this grand drama as it unfolds? And then, what's the storyline? What's the plot line? The conflict resolution? Where's it going? Where's it headed? What's the point? I don't know if you, I mean, again, most of us, cultures, uh, many, you know, most cultures learn to appreciate some more than others, but we enjoy a good story, a dramatic presentation, right? Maybe you say, well, I don't like to go sit in front of a musical. You know, okay, all right, maybe that, not that, you know, drama. Maybe you do. But how many of you watched a movie this last week, right? That's, That's the same thing. It's a story being acted out. It, it, you're, you're walking through the storyline. We love that as a culture, to learn a story, to watch a story, to see it unfold, to see who the acts are, what's the point, what's the conflict, what's the resolution. Maybe you're into books and you read literature. Same idea as we're reading the stories. What's going on? Who's involved? And well, God here is giving us, through the Apostle Paul, what God's grand drama is. What is the story of human history and how do we fit into it? And it's so helpful First of all, let's notice in the text that the actors, who's involved in this story? Well, notice verse 10 highlights that the story of of human history is ultimately all about God. History of creation and redemption is all about God. He is the grand central theme that ties all things together. He's the one that gives purpose and direction to history yet he has contrived a very unique strategy to reveal himself in a very special and particular way and that strategy that he has invented is through the church through us now what's fascinating is you see this philosophy of history that Paul has been unfolding he's given to us in the first three chapters of the book back in chapter 1 he told us what god is doing to demonstrate his infinite power Remember that, he says he wants us, that was the prayer for an enlightenment that we would come to an awareness and understanding of God's infinite power that is to us Word he says. Back in chapter one, verse 19. Chapter one was all about God's power being demonstrated through history, through the resurrection of Christ, through the ascension of Christ, through the sending of the Spirit, the, the creation of this thing he calls the church, a new assembly of people, both Jew and Gentile, gathered together, spiritual equals because we all have equal share in the spirit of God, the redemption of Christ. That gathering is a display, it's a depiction, it's a demonstration or an illustration of God's power. Chapter two, he elaborates on God demonstrating his infinite love. That not only do we see the power of God on display through history, particularly the church, through the death, burial, resurrection of Christ, the ascension, sending the spirit, all of that. But also we see what God has done in the gospel is a display not only of his power, but of his love. That was chapter two, particularly verses one to 10. We spent, what, three, four weeks unpacking that paragraph. God's demonstrating his power. He's also demonstrating his love. But now we get to to chapter three, and the key attribute that Paul wants us to see is god's wisdom look again at verse 10 he says to the intent that now under the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of god the character of god on display in the book of ephesians which paul wants us to see which is the the philosophy of history why what is the story of history well it's all about god revealing himself what about God are we learning? Well, all sorts of things. But Paul wants to really zoom in on these, these big ideas. God's power, God's love, and God's wisdom. God is displaying it through history, particularly our history, the history of the church. Now, I've shared this with you before in different contexts. Some of you may be familiar with this. Verse 10, that phrase, manifold wisdom of God, is one of my favorite phrases in the book of Ephesians. The word manifold is a really powerful Greek word study. The word manifold, translated here, God's wisdom is manifold, is also sometimes translated multifolded, multifaceted, many-sided. It refers to something beautifully complex and intricate. God's wisdom is described with this word, and that word is used to describe other things, like a multifaceted diamond, harmonious variations of a strain of music. The delicate or interwoven folds of a flower, such as a rose. You look into it and you look at the, the intricacy of the design, the overlay of the folds, etc. Or the intricate tapestry, an intricate tapestry of extraordinary design. This word was used to describe that. The idea is it's describing something that has a lot of individual parts. But when you add it up together or you put it in sequence, it has a beauty that blows you away. That's the idea. And so you can use, again, the facets of a diamond. You can use you know, a tapestry and these individual threads that you put in the right place, in the right order, the right sequence, and you now have this beauty. Or you have, again, if you're into music, the idea of the different notations, and you have all of it, the variations and notations, it comes into a harmony, and it's beautiful. That idea, is, is the, that's the word that Paul uses to describe God's wisdom, and I've shared this with you before. One of my favorite illustrations of that, at least in my mind, it makes, it makes sense, is, you know, I, I have this timeline of history book. you're familiar with this? I've shared this before. I think uh, when you roll it out, I think it's like 23 or 26 feet long, I forget. And it takes like multiple tables, one right after the other, to unfold this timeline. And because it's, again, somewhere in the 20, 23, 26 feet long. And what's remarkable, it's just just this beautiful timeline that it's walking you through the timeline of history. But it's designed to where you can open just a single fold of the timeline, and you can study that era of history. And then you, you turn the page, and you go to the next fold. And now there's another timeline. And it just it's history extended, the next part of the story. But what's profound is if you, if you take it, and you start in the first panel, the first fold, and then you go to the next one, the next one, the next one, and you unfold it all at once you are seeing all the more progressively as you advance from fold to fold to fold and then you put it all together, it is a very elaborate timeline of history. It's beautiful, it's breathtaking. The intricacy, the design, the complexity of history. And that's what this text is describing. God's wisdom is on display from the very beginning of history. And yet, as history advances, we go from this era to the next, we go from this fold to the next we see more of God's plan, and then we see more of God's plan, and then we see more of God's plan. And then, for Paul's point, from our perspective in history, we look backwards, and we see thousands of years of history leading up to our point, and we see our place in it. And then God, through prophecy, is giving a snapshot of history that's coming, future, what's going to happen, and now I can see where I belong in the process. And we have more information than Abraham did, than David did, than Isaiah did. We have more information because of our perspective in history, and and we're seeing multi-folds, manifold wisdom of God. We're seeing the next advanced stage, the next one, the next one, the next one. And I don't know about you, but to me, that's, that's what makes me love the study of history, is it gives me a sense of identity. Where did I come from? Why are we here? What got us here? Why is our culture the way it is? And we we understand our place in society. And it also helps direct us when it comes to our plan for the future, where we're heading. Well, this is the same thing. Paul says, I want you as a church to understand the wisdom of God that is on display and where you fit. Because he's saying, again, verse 10, he's saying that we, the church are the prism, if you will, through which God's wisdom is exacted. Do you want to see God's wisdom on display? Well, we, the church, are God's showcase through which he displays these wonderful characteristics of his power, his love, and his wisdom. Notice again, verse 10, to the intent, that now the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church, the manifold wisdom of God. God is showing his wisdom, but he's doing it through the church. We are the prism through which God's wisdom is exacted. Now we'll come back to some concepts here in verse 10, but notice in verse 11 how it describes how this plan of God has been something God has been orchestrating all along. He says in verse 11, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. This grand orchestration of the plan of God is according to his plan from eternity past to eternity future, the eternal plan of God. It's always meant to be this way. God's glorious plan has been accomplished and he is being accomplished through Christ. That's what Paul wants us to see, is that, in other words, as we think about the grand drama, who are the actors? Well, primarily, it's all about God. God is the primary protagonist. History and life is all about God. But it's secondly, us. We are actors on the stage. We are part of this grand drama as it unfolds. And God is using us to display his wisdom. Well, who then is the audience? Verse 10, again, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places. In other words, think of it this way. Think of the earth as a stage. There's a huge, huge audience that is out watching. The audience has been told that they will behold the manifold power, love, and wisdom of God. So they watch. They wait. They wait with excitement to behold what God is going to do to display his power and his love and his wisdom. But according to our text, who is watching? It's the principalities and powers of the universe which exist in the heavenly realm. We've talked about this before, but the word heavenly realm, it's talking about this dimension of existence that is beyond our own you realize that this physical world that we can see touch feel experience we can interact with this is not the only realm of existence you understand that right give me you know give me a nod okay the bible tells us there is another realm that at times interacts with this realm and when god gave visions to prophets of old, they were gaining a glimpse into that other realm. And in that realm, it is filled to the brim with other personalities, other beings. We, they go by various names. Here, they're, ta- they're described as principalities and powers, angels, demons. These are real beings the Bible talks about. Jesus says he came from that realm into our realm in order to live our life and die in our place and then he rose from the grave and he ascended back into the heavenly realm that's where he's at right now and he says from whence we wait his return and he's coming back but the reality is the bible says there is another realm and it is full of these creatures of all sorts of shapes and sizes And they are watching what God is doing in this realm through us. The implication is simply this. The implication of Paul's statement is this. Right now, as you live your life, there's a whole group of beings in the universe that are watching you. God is intent to show his power, love, and wisdom through you to them. They're the audience. They're watching what God is doing here and now through history, through us. When I first grasped that, it blew me away. First thought was, well, that's kind of creepy. Everything I do, right? Eat, drink, sleep, they're watching me. Yeah, that's the reality, right? Get over it. (laughs) But the reality is, not only are they watching, but God is equipping, he's guiding, he's teaching. He is showing them his power, love, and, and, and wisdom through how he's interacting with us. He's doing something in our life that stuns them to silence, and we have lots of examples of this in the Scripture. And I don't have time to walk through them all, right? But we have the Book of Job. That's a classic example where we have uh, all the angelic realms come, you know, come, come, congregate before God, and God says, "Hey, what do you think about Job?" And they're debating about Job, and so Satan says, "Well, I think if you do this or this, then Job will curse you to his face. Curse you to your face." And so God says, "Go ahead and try." And that's a grand drama playing out in the life of Job, but there's a drama behind the drama. It's God and Satan and the angelic realm in heaven. Same thing, death of Ahab, 1 Kings chapter 22. You can read about that sometime. God is deciding that Ahab, the king of Israel, wicked king of the north, must die in the battle of remote Gilead. So God says, how are we gonna kill him? And the angelic realm steps forward and they start debating and and saying, well, how about we do it this way? How about we do it that way? How about we do it this way? And one steps forward with a plan that God says, that's it, go ahead, you got the job. Now, that worldview, you need to think bigger than you are traditionally taught to think. That's what the Bible is teaching us. We need to think bigger. Life is not just about your little corner in Northeast Nevada. The universe does not revolve around Elko or Spring Creek, the universe does not revolve around you and your budget. The universe is way bigger, and and you and I are just a small part on a cosmic speck in the universe, and yet we're a central part of what God is doing, that God is using us to be the stage upon which he displays his character, his existence, his reality, all so that the heavenly hosts Stand in awe. I like to dramatize this every once in a while in my own brain because, you know, it's good meditation material. But I like to say, when, when, because you can trace it three or four times, the life of Christ, where it talks about angels showed up to minister to Christ. And I call them, you know, the the heavens water boys, right? But it's like, because I was a water boy in high school, I was like 11 or 12. My dad was coaching, and all the high school players were, you know, and it was, you know, break, you know, timeout. Jeff runs in with the water bottles. I mean, that was my job. And so I know what a water boy does, but, but this idea is you know, when, when Jesus threw his temptation in the wilderness, 40 days, tempted. At the end of that, what happens? Well, during it, right, Satan is there tempting him. At the end of it, what happens? It says angels come and minister to Jesus. They rush to his aid, they come to his side, and they nurse Jesus back to health. Happens a couple, three other times. Jesus is in the garden. Of Gethsemane. He's weeping, he's crying out to his father, he's sweating great drops of blood, and it says an angel comes to minister to him in the garden. When he's about to be arrested, Peter whips out his sword, because Peter thinks that you know he can handle the cohort of Roman soldiers right that is right in front of him. And, and he, he whops off the ear of Malchus, the high priest's servant, you remember this, and Jesus says, put your sword away, don't you realize that at this moment I could call down what? 12 legions of angels that could come deliver me right now now to me that again that that puts me in perspective try and put yourself as an angel in heaven watching the creator god incarnate on earth in jesus christ he's the one who created you you saw him go you know the drama that's unfolding the people on earth may not grasp it very often but you're an angel you see it you know why Jesus is there what he's doing and then you see his enemies coming against him because what what does the bible say it's satan entered into judas and judas went to betray jesus were there satanic powers at work in the crucifixion you bet there were satan is working overtime to try and make sure he thwarts the plan of god and the purpose of christ on earth but then you're one of the good angels and you're just like sitting on go, right? You're like, ah, oh, just let me at him, right? And you're one of that 12 legions of angels. And, 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 you know, the father says, nope, stay right there, right? It's not time yet. But maybe just moments, like when it was af- you know, after the temptation of 40 days in the wilderness or while he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, whatever, you're one of the water boys that the father says, okay, go ahead. You know, and you're, you rush to Jesus' aid and you're there to help him but then you're called back to heaven and you're watching what's happening next and then there's times of discouragement because there's times where the 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 forces of evil seem to be winning i like to say in my own mind's eye i'm sure when christ died on the cross and breathed his last there was a little rejoicing going on in satan and his realm they're thinking ah we got him we got this and you're one of the good angels, and you're sitting back with bated breath. Oh, what's going to happen next? Three days later, Jesus comes marching out of that tomb. And you're like, whoo, you know, you're throwing a, a you know, a, a holy fit. And the bad angels now are saying, oh, I didn't see that one coming. Right? He got us again. Well, that's the whole idea of the manifold wisdom of God. God is outsmarting the devil at every single turn. I love, I mean, we studied this in our study of the book of Revelation. And you look at what Satan is doing in this realm, in this day, in this time. What is Satan doing, not just at the national and cosmic level, what is he doing in your life? What is he doing to try and bring you down? What are the temptations that are placed in your path? They're watching and they're saying, whoa, what's gonna happen next? And God is doing something to reveal his power and his wisdom and his grace and his mercy through us to the angelic realm. I don't know about you, but that gives me purpose. That helps me see I have a point in this. I have a role to play in the process. So track with me, and then we'll wrap it up. We'll transition to a song. But think about this. Here's the conflict. Here's the resolution. Every good drama requires a conflict through which the characters change, grow, and triumph. Again, if you're into literature, have you ever took a Literature 101 class. They always tell you the common plot lines are man versus man, man against self, man against nature, man against God, right? Those are the conflict that makes every good story a good story. There has to be conflict. There has to be struggle. There has to be change, growth in the the characters. Well, what we're seeing, according to Paul, we are what God is using to display his glory and his grace and his wisdom, all of these things, but he's doing it through the church and we are the ones in conflict. We are the ones going through the tests. We are the ones going through the hardships. We're the ones going through, as Paul says in verse 13, tribulations. Paul, so Paul says, again, he alludes to it. Let's look at verse 13. He says, wherefore I desire that you faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. In other words, Paul wants to put a totally different spin on this. He wants to revolutionize the way they think. As a, as a church in, a, in Ephesus. He says, if you hear that I'm in prison and your first reaction is to be troubled by that, that you're like, oh no, Paul, I'm so sorry. And Paul says, but God has allowed this tribulation in my life because I was serving his purpose of preaching the gospel. And this trouble that I'm experiencing is for your benefit, Your glory. You are benefiting by my trials. So rather than sit and throw a pity party, oh, Paul, we're so, you know, Paul says, no, 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 realize I am just part of the grand drama. God has let this happen. God's the one who has made sure that the plan is is going according to his purpose. And yet he says "There's, there's a purpose behind it. So Don't be troubled at my tribulations for you. God is using my hardship for your glory. In other words, this this should transform the way we think about life. Our suffering is not pointless. It never is pointless. Our suffering, rather, is purposeful. Our suffering is, particularly for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of what God is doing in and through the church, will actually bring glory. That's what Paul's point is that God is using even the hard times of our life, the trials, the temptations, the difficult uh, you know, health crisis, whatever you're going through, God is using it for the purpose of his glory and the angelic realm is watching and you and I get to be a part of this grand process and then one day we get to enter beyond the veil as the old hymn writers wrote and we get to be part of that realm. We get to see it from the other side, looking back, and we can see what God did and why God did it in our life, through our life, down through the stages of history, and we will sit back with awe and wonderment at what God has done. Isn't that marvelous? And that note of of purpose is what gives us the spirit of triumph and victory that we don't have to live life cowering in a corner, wondering why, because we actually have been equipped with the the truth of what god 's doing and why he 's doing it ultimately for his glory, so with that said all right we 're going to do a closing song. What I would like to do is we 're going to sing because I want to sing about victory, I want to sing about triumph, I want to sing about this idea of what God has done through the ages of history to bring Glory to himself and victory to his church. One of the guys I grew up with, Bill Bennett, he was part of Nephi Church my entire grown-up year years. He just died a few years back. Every single time we asked for favorites, he used to say, "Victory in Jesus." Right? That was the song. I can't sing this song without thinking of Bill Bennett. But I want to sing "Victory in Jesus," and and just let me walk you through it real quick. And 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 I want you to sing with gusto. Right? If, That's a word, right? Sing with gusto. Why? Because we have the victory. In other words, try and personify or put in your mind's eye that angelic realm that's watching the crucifixion, watching, oh no, what's this? Well, but then you see the victory. Uh, You see what God does in his wisdom to pull it off, to defeat Satan in the wicked realm. But that's what this song is all about. I heard an old, old story how a savior came from glory. He came from the other realm, How he gave his life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. I have a purpose. I'm I'm part of the plan of God, a saving purpose of redemption. I heard about his groaning of his precious blood's atoning. Then I repented of my sins and won the victory. I decided I was going to participate in God's plan. I repented of my sins. Now I'm part of this victorious plan. Chorus: if you're familiar with it. Oh, victory in Jesus, my savior forever. He sought me and he bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew him. Even before I knew him, he loved me. Why? Because it's part of the eternal plan of God. Chapter three, verse 11. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. Second verse, I heard about his healing of his cleansing power revealing how he made the lame to walk again and caused the blind to see. Then I cried, dear Jesus, come and heal my broken spirit. And somehow, Jesus came and brought to me the victory. Again, there's a purpose and a point. He's bringing victory to us. Third verse, I heard about a mansion. He has built for me in glory. Because when we leave this realm, we're going to the next one. And I heard about the streets of gold beyond the crystal sea. About the angels singing in the old redemption story. And some sweet day I'll sing up there the song of victory it's coming that we're going to be victorious one day all right so stand with me sing with gusto let's sing victory in jesus go ahead give us our intro
1: i heard an old old story how a savior came from glory How he gave his life on Calvary To save a wretch like me I heard about his groaning Of his precious blood's atoning Then I repented of my sins And won the victory Oh, victory! my Savior forever. He sought me, and He bought me with His redeeming blood. He loved me I knew Him, and all my love is due Him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. I heard about his healing, of his cleansing power revealing. How he made the lame to walk again, and caused the blind to see. And then I cried, dear Jesus, come and heal my broken spirit. And somehow Jesus came and brought On the last, I heard about a mansion he has built for me in glory, and I heard about the streets of gold beyond the crystal sea, about the angels singing and the old redemption story. And some sweet day I'll sing up there The song of victory Oh, victory in Jesus My Savior forever He sought me and bought me With His redeeming blood He loved me ever all my love is due him he plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood let's pray father
0: thank you so much thank you for the grand drama that you are unfolding down through the eras of history up into ours. hours and on into the future. Lord, we thank you that you have given to us a place and a purpose in this grand and cosmic plan that, Lord, I pray that as we think through these concepts that we would receive the enlightenment that Paul prayed so much for, that we ourselves mimic him in praying for it as well, that, Lord, we need to grasp this, understand it, to submit to it, to be enlivened by it, to realize that, Lord, we have a purpose and a plan in your grand cosmic plan of redemption and that that is leading to ultimate victory, that even tribulation now, hardship now, struggle now is still serving the ultimate end of your glory and the purposes that you have purposed for all of eternity. Father, thank you for these truths. Help us, Lord, to walk out of here and enter our week with this sort of uh, understanding of our place and purpose that we would indeed submit ourselves to you afresh and experience your grace in our lives as we serve you each day for your glory. So Father, we thank you for these things. We commit ourselves to you and we pray your glory through us in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you all. You're dismissed.